Our reading this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. If you're following along in the red Bibles in the back of the pews, that's page 977. Ephesians 3, 8 through 11. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable reaches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is plain of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Good morning to you. May I just tell you how much I appreciate getting to be with you today and what an honor it is to be with the Katy Church of Christ. What an honor it is to get to be with the Bakers and um, enjoy their company. And I've had a great time over the weekend with this marriage seminar. And now we are finishing up with the Lord's Day and it is a great Lord's Day. I love the Church of Christ. If I know my own heart, I'm a member of the Church of Christ, not because my parents were, but because I believe it's right. There are times when people, <clears throat> of course, come into our assembly like this for the first time. And I understand the fact that there are some things that they may find unusual, maybe even strange, maybe having to do with our singing. And don't you have good singing here? Congregational, a cappella singing. But that's different. That's just kind of unusual. And we eat the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. And that's, that too is sort of unusual. And we preach and teach and believe that baptism is essential for a person's salvation. And that sort of sets us apart too. What I want to do is connect the dots this morning. I love the Church of Christ. And I want, I want to explain to you why I love it. Now, let me, let me set the table first. And let's talk about Luke chapter 8. Then we're going to go to our main text for this morning, which is Matthew chapter 16. But in Luke chapter 8, Jesus gives the parable of the sower. And perhaps you remember, he, he, he talks about a, a farmer who goes to sow his seed. Now, don't, don't picture this as, as a man who would go through with a stick and, and poke holes in the dirt and drop a seed in and cover it up. This was broadcasting the seed. And so you'd have an apron or some, some piece of cloth that would hold a large quantity of seed and you, would, and you would throw it, you would sling it. Now, of course, you're going to waste a lot of seed, but it was okay. It was worth it for how much ground you could cover quickly. Now hold that, hold that picture. And Jesus uses that because it was familiar to his disciples. And he said, now, the sower went forth to sow his seed, and some fell on this kind of ground and some on that. Well, it was inevitable. Some of it fell on stony ground. Some of it fell on uh, thorny ground. Some of it fell on the wayside soil. 
and some of it fell on good soil and it, and it grew just great. Now in verse 11 of Luke 8, he said, now the seed is the Word of God. This is really important. When you talk about the church of Christ, you're going to hear the term restoration. And the idea, the concept is, it's not complicated, it's just that, that what we're saying is we need to go back. You can't go forward unless you go back. Let's go back and be the first century church. Let's, I mean, I, I know, I know from Scripture what these people did to please God. And if we do what they did, won't we please God too? And can't we, can't we restore New Testament Christianity? And won't that just make us Christians? Christians and members of the church that Jesus was talking about when he said, on this rock, I will build my church. And can we do that? And some people would find that very difficult to believe. I mean, after all, it's been a couple of thousand years now. And how in the world could you do that? How could you restore New Testament Christianity after it's been so long? And after all, we don't live in Jerusalem. We live a long way from there. We live in the United States of America. And it just doesn't make any sense. Oh, oh it does. And here's how. It's the seed principle. Now, there, there's some things that you know about seed. Everybody, I'm not a farmer. No, I'm not even good at gardening. But there are some things that we just commonly know about seed. What can you think of? Well, the first thing is that seed always produces after its kind. That always does. If you plant crookneck squash, you know what you're going to get? <laughs> I mean, soil and water and all things sunshine, all things being equal. What's going to come up is crookneck squash, right? How many times out of 100 is that true? Well, it's going to happen 100% of the time because that's what's in the seed and seed only produces after its kind. If you plant crookneck squash. I mean, you go to the seed store and, and out of that bin, you, you have the man dip you out a cup full of crookneck squash seed and you plant it. And what comes up is watermelon. You go back to the store and you say, look, I, I bought this from you, crookneck squash. What came up was watermelon. What's he going to say? He's not going to say, you never know about seed. Yeah, you know what? Anything. He's not going to say that. What he's going to say is, well, sometimes what happens is that people get a little bit of the seed out of this bin and it comes over here and, and I'm sorry about that. And here's a refund. That's what he's going to say. Because seed always produces after its kind. And you know that. Seed is preservable. So it's very common for gardeners to hold back seed from one season to the next just makes sense. It's an economical decision. And, and if, you, if you plant it this year and you save back some seed and you dry it and it's preserved, next year you can plant it, same thing's going to come up because that's what's in the seed and you've preserved it and the seed is preservable. You can transport seed. I went to Zambia one time in Zimbabwe in Africa and the partner that I was with was a gardener. I, I wasn't much of a gardener, but he brought back some African beans now, they were dried seed, and, and they didn't bother us through customs, didn't seem to be a problem. And he took those seeds that we got from Africa, and he planted them in Tennessee. And you know what came up? African beans. That's, that's what was there, but it was transportable. You can bring it to the other side of the earth, and you can plant it, and that's, it, it's transportable. It, it'll, it'll produce after its kind. And those are the things you know about seed. Now, hold that. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus told the parable of the sower and he said, now the seed is the word of God. These principles are applicable to gospel seed. Now, what I mean is that you go to Acts chapter 2 and you have the birth of the church. And Peter and those other apostles stood up and this is the birthplace of the church. The beginning of the church is right here in Acts chapter 2. 
And Peter and those other apostles preach the Word of God. They preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that's gospel seed. And what came up when that seed was planted in the hearts of honest and good people was Christians. Just Christians. Disciples of Jesus. And the Bible says they were added to the church. Now, what happens if if you take and, and put back some seed from your garden and you don't just keep it till next season, but suppose you kept it, I mean, it's crooked neck squash and, and you kept it for not just a year, but five years and planted it, all things being equal, what would come up after five years? Same thing. What if you kept it 10 years? What if you could keep it 50 years? If you could keep that seed 50 years and you lived long enough and it didn't it, it, it sustained. You kept it dry and everything in your, in your place and you planted it. After 50 years, what would come up is the same thing. What if, just stretch your imagination. What if you could keep it 2,000 years? What would come up? Same thing. You take the gospel seed then that is in Acts chapter 2 and people listened to that gospel of Jesus Christ and they obeyed that gospel and the Bible says they were added to the church. And so is it possible that you could take that same gospel and bring it to Texas and preach it in 2023. And honest and good hearts receive that seed and they followed that same thing. What would come up? And the answer is that this, it would be the same thing that came up 2,000 years ago. I know then real seed, that's a problem because, well, seed will rot. It, you, you can't, I've heard of it happening in extreme, in Egypt and place, I don't know, but you're, you're around here, you know, you couldn't keep seed 2,000 years and it not just decay to dust. But 1 Peter 1 and 23 says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. It's not subject to decay. The gospel seed's not subject to decay not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. If we take the seed, which is the gospel, the Word of God, and we plant it today in honest hearts, what will come up is just Christians. All right. Now that gets us prepared for Matthew chapter 16. And I want to start in verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples saying, Who do men say that I the Son of Man am? Jesus God oh, oh, often had this propensity to ask questions, not because he was seeking knowledge, but because he wanted to hear people say it. I want to hear you say it. So to Adam, God said, where are you, Adam? God knew where Adam was. It wasn't that. It was that he wanted to hear him say it. And same here. Who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Well, some say that you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, Jeremiah, maybe one of the prophets. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood did not reveal this unto you, but my father, which is in heaven. And I say unto you that, that you're Peter and on this rock. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the rock is the reality which Jesus has just stated. The rock is the reality that Jesus is the son of God. On this truth that I'm God's son, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Now that's King James, the gates of hell. The, the word is actually Hades. 
And, and Hades, or the Hadean realm, means the realm of departed spirits. Hades is the realm of, of people who have died. And that's the, that's the place to which they go. It has a place of bliss and a place of torment. But the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It won't stop me. And the point is, I'm going to die. Jesus is saying, I'm going to go to the cross, but it's not going to stop me from my objective, which is to build my church. I'm going to build my church. Let's make some observations about this statement. On this rock, I will build my church. The first one is that it was future tense. Now that teaches me, that's educational to me. Because this is Matthew chapter 16. Jesus hasn't died yet. He's going to die and he's going to buy the church with his blood. But he hasn't died yet. On this rock, I will do this. I haven't done it, but, but I will do this. It was future tense. Now that's very interesting. That means that the church didn't start with Adam and Eve. And it didn't start with Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Noah. The church didn't start with John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11 says, among those that are born of women, there hasn't risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he which is least in the kingdom, that's the church, he that is least in the kingdom is greater than he. What is the point of that? We believe John was a great man and, and died and went to glory, but he was never a member of the church. You know why? We died before the church was established, before it began. In Matthew chapter 14, you read about the death of John the Baptist. He was beheaded. But in chapter 16, you read Jesus saying, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Hadn't been built yet. It was future tense at this point. The church would be begun in Acts chapter 2, first Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, here's the second point I want to give you. It was possessive. On this rock, I will build my church. Let that just revolutionize your thought processes. This is so important. You've got to get this foundational truth. The church does not belong to you and me. Not this church. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. On this rock, I will build my church. Now, that's very significant because, it, well, when it comes to what we do in worship, who gets to decide? I mean, today in our worship, and we ate the Lord's Supper. And you know what we ate for the Lord's Supper? We ate unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. And we do it every first day of the week. And who gets to decide that? I mean, and we had congregational singing. We all sang. And we just sang. The only instrument in this room is the human voice. And that's how we worshiped God this morning. And wasn't it beautiful? But who decides that? And the answer is that that New Testament of yours is the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. It belongs to him. Romans 16 and verse 16 says, the churches of Christ salute you. It means the congregations of the church of Christ in a given area. Those congregations, but it's called the church of Christ. And why? It, because it emphasizes that it belongs to him. In Ephesians 5 and verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. What are you doing on the cross? Jesus, that doesn't make any sense. You're the Son of God. You're the creator of this universe. How can you be on a cross? And the answer is, I'm purchasing the church. That's, that's the price for the church. I'm buying the church. And the church belongs to him. And in our text he says, on this rock I will build my church. The Your New Testament is the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. 
I want you to think about that. I mean, you, you and I are very familiar with the concept of making a will. And if you are of any appreciable age, you be sure you have a will. You need to have a will. And you know what that means, of course. And my, uh, my father recently died. I'm the executor of my parents' will. And, and that's, a, that's an interesting role that I haven't played before until recently. And what it means is that, and my father was wonderful about this. He, we spent a lot of time together and he would ex- explain to me what to do when he was gone and, and how to access things and how he wanted it carried out and, and how he wanted his uh, estate to be used in detail. And you understand that as the executor, I have this fiduciary responsibility. That's not my money, that's his money. And I am bound to carry out what his wishes were for that. And that's the role of the executor or the executrix. What would you think about a man who, after his father died or parents died, betrayed that? I suppose it happens. I know what my father said, I know what he wants, but I have selfish desires. And instead I will use his estate for my own personal benefit, even in ways that are opposed to what he said. How would you feel about that? And you would say, that is very low. There's no respect in that. That is in fact contemptuous. Wouldn't you say that? I mean, that's how we'd feel. That's really low. That does, you don't have a right. Well, hold on. Hold that thought for a minute and appreciate that the, that the New Testament is the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. It has a bearing on what we do. And so the question about what we do in worship or what we preach or what we teach is not ours to decide. It belongs to Him. And we have this fiduciary duty that we carry out. What's his will? What is he, what is he, what was his will and what was it given to us? And it's the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. On this rock, I will build my church. Now here's the third thing, and this one's going to get hard. This one's tough. And, and uh, I, think, I think to make it uh, helpful to you and me, what we need to do if you'll try to do this is to erase from your mind all that you know about organized religion and, and just focus on what the text says. Man, man has seen fit to establish literally thousands of churches under the umbrella of something, sometimes people will call it ecumenicalism or it will call it denominationalism or anyway, the idea is that there are thousands of different churches under the umbrella of of the Church of Christ or Christ Church. I want you to observe that Jesus spoke in singular terms. On this rock I'll build my church. My church. Now what I'm about to describe to you, it it really doesn't matter whether or not I'm a member of it. This is not subjective truth, this is objective truth. Whether or not I'm going to heaven or hell, whether or not I'm part of this church of His is really irrelevant to this just fact. It's that the New Testament teaches that Jesus came and established His church. 
and, and how that's to be conducted is found on the pages of the New Testament. That's just truth. On this rock, I will build my church. So when you, when you go, for example, to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, and it says, if I tarry long that, that you may now how, know how to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. That little article, the, is very interesting. The church. The church. Now, what that would mean is that, well, it means the same thing as our text today. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Christ means that anybody else who pops up and says, I'm a Christ, I'm Christ, I'm, no, you're not. No, you know, actually, no, you're not. Because Jesus is, are you ready for this? He's the Christ. The Christ means the one and the only one. The Christ. The same language is used in reference to the church. Just, just drink that in. It's, it's used in reference to the church. The church of the living God. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's said even more explicitly than that. So you go to Ephesians chapter 4. And in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 4, you have a list of seven things of which there's only one. Now this is about unity and that, that people in religion ought to be unified. People in Christendom, all the churches, all the people that, that claim attachment to Jesus ought to be united. We ought to all be united. Well, how can you do that? How is that even possible? And that's what Paul is talking about. And then he says in Ephesians 4 verse 4, there's one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. There are as many baptisms as there are God. How many gods are there? Only one. Only one. And you can go down the list. Only one spirit, only one Lord. The first one on the list is that there's one body right? There's one body. And at first you might look at that and not, you know, you may wonder, I mean, could that, could that be the body of Jesus? What body is he referencing? But you don't have to go hunting very far because this is Ephesians 4 and verse 4. In Ephesians 1, just turn a page over, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, the Bible says that God gave Jesus to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. What, 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 what? But what is the one body? The one body is the church. How many churches did Jesus come to establish? This is, this is not arrogance. Again, this doesn't have anything to do with me. It has nothing to do with what my spiritual state is or if I'm right with God or if I'm wrong with God. That's an irrelevancy. It's just objective truth that the New Testament teaches. There's one body. It just says it. And that the body is the church. It's singular in number. Number four. The church is the sphere of the saved. According to the New Testament, the church is the realm, if you please, of the saved. The people who are saved by the blood of Jesus. Um, I'm going to illustrate that a couple of different ways from the Scripture. Here's Colossians 1, 20, uh, verse 13. Colossians 1 and verse 13. In the King James, I'll read it from there. It says that He's translated us you know what translated means. Because from this pulpit sometimes, uh, perhaps often, you have translation. And, and what it means is that you take a principle, a concept, a thought out of one language and you put it into a different language. But the word is used in the King James here to describe something else. When you sinned and then you became a Christian, you were saved. And it says he translated us 
out of the power of darkness. Oh, stop a minute. I did, I did not remember the first time I committed sin. I don't remember when that happened, but I know that I created a debt that I could not pay. I don't have the wherewithal to pay for that. So here's the question. Now he takes us out of the power of darkness. There's, there's forgiveness. But what does he do with us? So where did he put you when he forgave you for your sins? Colossians 1.13. He translates us out of the power of darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son. Now, ladies and gentlemen, his kingdom is his church. He doesn't have two groups of people. It's just a different way to describe the same body of people in the world today. We're his people. We're his subjects. We're his servants. We're his disciples. Take it this way. Here's Acts chapter 2. And, and it's Pentecost and it's the beginning of the church. Everything before it's been pointing to it. Everything after it's going to point back to it. This is, the, this is the moment. And Peter begins to preach. And in verse 38, he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. And then you read on and it says that on that day, 3,000 people were baptized. And they were, are you ready for this? Added to his church. So, when those people obeyed the gospel and were immersed in that water in obedience to Christ, their sins were washed away. And when their sins were washed away, what did the Lord do with them? And the answer is He put them in His church. You see, the church is the sphere of the saved. It's the, it's the group of people that are saved by the blood of Jesus. That's what it is. Now, now go with me, go to, do this thought process with me. So go to one of those people, walk up to one of those people who was just baptized and let's ask him some questions. I mean, I mean, he's dripping with the waters of baptism. It's the first century, just been baptized in Acts chapter 2. And you walk up to him and let's ask him. I mean, so I understand that you were baptized just now. Yes, I was. And, and why did you do that? I, I did that for the forgiveness of sins in the blood of Jesus. I see. And, and now, so you were added to the church. That's right. He added me to the church when he forgave me of my sins. And now I'd like to know this question. What, what denomination is that? I, I want to impact the way you think for the rest of your life about this. What would he say? What denomination were you just added to? And what's the answer? What would he answer? The answer is, he doesn't know what you're talking about. It's going to be hundreds of years before any denomination will exist. None of them exist. They don't exist. What exists is the church that Jesus was talking about when he said, on this rock, I will build my church. That's all those people were. They were members of that church. And how did they become members of it? Because the gospel seed had been planted in their hearts and they obeyed it. And they, they believed it and they obeyed it and they became Christians. And as such, they were added to his church. And, and I, I know some things about that church. I mean, I, I've read the New Testament and, and you can, anybody can do this. You can read the New Testament and learn details about, I know what they were called. Individually, Acts 11 and 26, the disciples were called. It wasn't just that they were Christians, it's that they were called Christians first in Antioch. 
Those disciples were called that. When you go to the hospital and it says religious preference, I, I recommend that you write one word, Christian. Just write Christian. That's all you are. You're just a Christian. That's what they were called. I, I know what they were called collectively as a group. They were called, well, they, they were called different things. In Romans 16, 16, they're called the Church of Christ. And sometimes you'll have, for example, 1 John chapter 3 and verse, uh, 1 Timothy 3, 15, they were called the Church of God or the House of God. Sometimes 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, it was called, uh, according to location, it was called the Church of God at Corinth. In this case here, it's the Church of Christ at Katy. And it wouldn't matter what you were called, but as long as it was scriptural today, as long as it was what the Bible says. But in this case, that's what they were called collectively. I know what, I know what they did in worship. I mean, because I, I can read about this church. I know what they did. They sang just like we did today in Ephesians 5 and 19 and Colossians 3 and verse 16. And they did just like we did. It was congregational. Everybody sang. And it was reciprocal. That's a big word. But, but what it means is singing to one another, speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. So what happened in this room today is not just that we sang to God, but we sang to one another. It's a beautiful thing because we're encouraging each other to be Christians and to be strong and to do right. And it works. It is encouraging. And they prayed, Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. They ate the Lord's Supper. And when they ate the Lord's Supper, Acts 20 and verse 7 and 1 Corinthians 11, they had unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. That's what we did this morning. That's what they had. Just like that. And, and, and Jesus, when he instituted this, he, Matthew 26, he prayed just like we did this morning. And that's what they carried out in the church. That's what they did. And they gave of their means. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2. Every first day of the week they did that. I know something about this church. And they had preaching. Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 and following. Just like, just like we're doing this morning. I know something about that. <clears throat> and they loved one another. By this, Jesus said in John 13 and about verse 34, you'll, uh, other people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And they loved one another. I know something about this church of the New Testament because I've read the New Testament. It's not hard. You can just read the New Testament. This is what they did. This is how they worship. This is what they preach. This is how, what they taught a person must do to be saved. I, I, I can know that. I know that. And some people, some people hear me say that and, and they find that objectionable. Because you people in the church of Christ, you're, why, do you, why do you get so serious about the details? Jesus doesn't care about the details, about what you do in the church or all this different stuff. Different churches preach and teach different things and it doesn't matter to him. I think so long as you love Jesus, that is all that matters. Nothing else. This is just superficial, incidental. In 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 2, the Bible describes the church as, as the wife or bride of Christ. I know something about a wife. I've had one for quite a long time. I wish she was here with me, but she's back home. But um, sometimes I, I take her shopping and she, she really likes that. Now I'm a man, so I don't care a snap about shopping. 
I think that what, you know, if you want something, you need to buy something, you just go in the store and you buy it and you get out of there. That's what, that's what men, that's what we do. But a woman, yeah, it's different for a woman. But, I, but I, ha, I don't like shopping, but I like her. And so I take her sometimes. And we go and I get her some ice cream or some coffee. And, and she'll go in the dress store. I don't really need, I, so I sit outside. We have this beautiful mall. I talked about it yesterday. It's an outdoor mall. And you can go and you can just uh, walk. And it's beautiful out there. And you come to Huntsville and I'll show it to you. They have arched stone walkways and water out. It's beautiful out there. So she goes into the store and I sit outside on the bench. And if it's a beautiful evening, I just enjoy that. that you, can, you can go on Friday night and watch the teenage creatures. That's kind of interesting. And I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't mean that. I'm just kidding. But you can go and sit out there and that's very pleasant. And I suppose that sitting out there in front of that Belk store or whatever store it is, that I, I've watched a lot of people exit the store and I've watched a lot of wives exit that store. And I just want you to know right now that I've never gone home with the wrong wife. I, I never have done that. And do you know why? It's because while there's some similarities between my wife and all those other women, they are not my wife. And I, I declare to you that I married that girl on purpose. She had qualities that I really appreciated and she's the one that I wanted and she was foolish enough to accept my ring and so we've been married all these years. Now in Genesis 29 you read about Jacob and his two wives. Now ladies and gentlemen polygamy has never worked out. It never has. We're not cut out for this. But God there was a period when God permitted people to do this and Jacob he tripped into it. He didn't mean to do it. He wanted to marry Rachel. Oh, she was beautiful and he was crazy about her. And so he goes to Laban, her daddy, and says, I want to marry your daughter. And you remember that Laban said, what will you give me for her? Which I think is very amusing. What will you give me? And they negotiated for her hand and seven years of work. If, if Jacob would work for Laban for seven years, then Jacob could marry the daughter. And he said, okay. They, they shook on it. He works seven years, and then he goes to Laban and says, okay, I've done the seven years, I want, I want to marry your daughter. Can, can we do this? I want, I want Rachel. And he said, oh, sure, let's get the things. So they got this, this whole wedding thing. Now, what I'm about to tell you, I don't understand. I just know that's what the Bible says. But according to their customs and all of their festivities for the wedding, they finish up, and the bride and groom, and I'm sure it was night and dark, and they go to their honeymoon chamber, and uh, there you are. And then the next morning, Jacob wakes up and it's not Rachel at all. It's her sister Leah in the bed with him. I, I'm not exactly sure what he said. I think it was something like, what are you doing here? Why are you here? And that didn't get him anywhere. So he, he makes a beeline to Laban and says, how, how can you do, what are you going, what's going on here? You double crosser. Why isn't, what, what happened? He said, well, you married Le Leah. I married, I don't, what are you talking about? Did, did I, I forgot to mention to you that we have a custom that the oldest daughter must marry first. Oh, I should have said this to you. I'm sorry, but you, you married Leah because she's the oldest. That's what has to happen. And, and Jacob responded, but I want Rachel. And this sorry double crossing man said, what about seven more years? Work seven more years and you can have Rachel. I think, I think I'd have cleaned his clock. I, I, you know, what would you do? And let's just freeze the, freeze the frame right here and let's just make an observation. So what do you think Jacob should do? And, and you could reason with him. Now look, Jacob, I know you're upset, 
but it's not reasonable that you should work seven more years. That's just, it's just wrong, it's wrong, wrong, wrong that he's asking this of you. And so I just think that, I mean, you look at Leah. I know she wasn't your first pick, but she's a woman. She has long hair. She would fulfill domestic responsibilities, all the things, she, she, she'll be fine. Just, just keep Leah and have a good life. How would he respond to that? Well, you don't, you don't have to wonder because you know probably from the Bible what happened in this narrative. And that is he worked the extra seven years. Now, why did he do that? Because, because Rachel, despite the fact that there were similarities between Leah and Rachel, Rachel had the qualities he wanted. Now, what's true about every man I believe in this room is that you married your wife on purpose because she had distinctive qualities which separated her from other women. She's unique. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And all these things we've been talking about, how do you, how do you worship in the church? You go to the New Testament and you say, this is what he left us in his last will and testament. And the church is his bride. I think he cares. He cares. Let me give you one more illustration and then I'll be finished about the church of Christ. I want you to understand why, why is it that we sing the way that we do? It's because that's what's in the last will and testament. Why do we eat the Lord's Supper the way that we do? And we do it every first day. Well, why do we do that? It's because that's what's, that's what's in the last will and testament. And it's His bride and, and He cares. Why do we pray like we do? Why do we pray to God through Jesus instead of to Mother Mary? And the reason is because, because that's what's in the his last will and testament. If you take a man of reasonable intelligence and he comes to you and he says, look, I don't, I don't really know anything about any organized religion, but I believe there's a heaven and a hell. I want to go to heaven. Would you help me do this? Can you show me how to do this? And suppose that for the sake of the illustration, you give him a copy of the Bible and he goes into a secluded place and for however long it takes, he reads and studies the, the Bible. And then he comes out, he digests it, and he comes out of that. He has no exposure to any organized religion, but he studies the Bible and he comes out. Now, what I'm about to say, um, you must take my word for this. I, 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 I mean no offense in what I'm about to say. I, I have neighbors and friends that are members of lots of different religions, and they're better to me than I deserve, and I love those people. I mean no offense about what I'm about to say, but I want you to think about it. If all he knows is the Bible and he comes out of that, he's not going to come out and say, I would sure like to be a member of the Seventh-day Adventists. Because he, he wouldn't come out and say, I want to be a Catholic. I mean, I, I mean, somebody might come along and teach him Catholicism, and maybe he would decide to become a Catholic. But if all he knows is the Word of God, ladies and gentlemen, he doesn't know enough to be a Catholic or a Seventh-day Adventist or a Mormon or an Episcopalian or, or and you can just kind of go down the line. I mean no offense to anybody. I'm just saying that if all he knows is the Bible, he doesn't know enough. It's kind of like planting crook neck squash and watermelon comes up and what do you know? that you know that you know has happened. And what's happened is that some other kind of seed has gotten into the bin. You know that. 
The same is true about gospel seed. Let's go back to the Bible. What are you a member of? I'm a member of the Church of Christ. Now, if you hear me say that, in my whole life, for the rest of my life, you hear me say that, I have no reference to any denomination. I've never been a member of any denomination. Never have wanted to. I'm, I just want to be a member of the church that Jesus was talking about when He said, on this rock I'll build my church. And then the answers to the questions about how we do what we do or what we believe. Do not rely upon men. What does the Bible say? Show me what it says. Let me dig into it and find out what it says. Because this is the description of how He wants the church to be. And then let's do that. I, I love the church of Christ for its simplicity. You may ask me a question about the Scripture that I do not know. But that's okay. It's not between you and me. It's between you and me and the Lord. We're working to be His servants. And I could say, I don't know the answer, but I tell you what, give me some time and let me study. And then we can study together and we can ferret this out. We can figure out what the Bible says about that. And then we'll obey Him. You're so kind to listen. I hope you'll love the Church of Christ too. It's not just about instrumental music. It's not just about what we do, how often we eat the Lord's Supper, or about baptism. It's, it's, it's not about those. It's about something much more profound that influences us in all of these areas. Now, maybe, maybe there's somebody here this morning, you've been studying about this, you've been, and you want to become a Christian, just a Christian, just a New Testament Christian. You want to be what they were in the first century. Now would be a great time to do that. We'd be so happy to assist you and help you. And, but I can tell you this, you're not going to be voted in. The church doesn't belong to us. When those people obey the gospel by repentance and confession and baptism and water, they were added to the church. And the Lord does the adding, not us. You'll just be a Christian and a member of the church that Jesus was talking about when He said, on this rock I'll build my church. To make it convenient, we like to sing a song and encourage anybody who would like to respond to come forward and we'll be happy to assist you. We're going to sing a song of encouragement. If you'd like to respond, come now as we stand and sing.